0: From Los Angeles, California, on the MTV Podcast Network, this is North Mollywood. I'm Alex Papadimus, and sitting across from me, known on Pico Boulevard as the Mollusk, Molly Lambert.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to North Mollywood. And joining us today is Jonathan Gold, a very special guest, the LA Times food critic and a former music critic and the star of the documentary, City of Gold, about his food writing and penchant for amazing hole-in-the-wall strip mall LA restaurants. Thank you for being here.
2: Glad to be in North Mollywood.
1: <laughs> you, uh, you have eaten all over Los Angeles, and uh, not to embarrass you, but you won a Pulitzer for your food writing a few years ago.
2: I did apparently, this is the uh, today is the tenth anniversary of the uh, review of the taco stand in Highland Park that serves uh, p- the porno burrito <laughs> <laughs> and, and i i'm I'm still the only uh, writer. In America, who has won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about a porno burrito
1: that's the best what I mean, is
2: what's in the porno burrito it's It's just a regular burrito it's called that because of its unusual girth and length <laughs> sure. <laughs> I first found out about it i got a I got an email from somebody who told me to google porno burrito and I did and everything went back to the stand <laughs> and there was this large um, Series of, you know, selfies of people trying to swallow it all. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was a formidable.
1: Was that what you won the Pulitzer for? Uh,
2: For I I didn't swallow it all. (laughs) 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 Uh, I I actually like the potato tacos better, (laughs) but but for uh, I I suppose. you know, alerting the authorities that such a burrito existed.
1: I was very excited about you winning that award also because I felt like it was very vindicating for Los Angeles as a food town, which is something I've always thought, you know, that we are a great place for food. Oh,
2: I think we're the best place to eat in the world. And I love Note I don't say we don't, have, we don't have the best restaurants in the world, but we're the best place to eat in the world.
1: I agree. And I, I love the way that you write about sort of vernacular food and strip mall food because that is all my favorite food. Just that food doesn't have to be expensive to be amazing. And sometimes just the opposite. The more expensive, sort of the more, you know, expectations you bring to it. And uh, all my favorite places here are, are in strip malls.
2: Yeah, I was um, interviewing the, the musician Ian Mackay a million years ago. Uh, uh, Fugazi, he was in Minor Threat, other stuff. And he was famous at the time for insisting that Fugazi not play any shows that cost more than 350 to get into. And I was asking him about that, and he said that it gave him the freedom to suck. <laughs> <laughs> He couldn't understand the people who would pay like, you know, $115 to get into a show and it was terrible, why they didn't just like rise up and tear down the stage. If if you see a show that's bad for $115, it's you're looking for ways to improvise that Molotov cocktail. (laughs) And it's not quite that way with food. I mean, some very expensive food is extraordinarily good. It's just that it isn't necessarily extraordinarily good. And a lot of times the, you find the best food is coming from people who are trying to replicate what they ate at home. They're trying to recreate their experiences of where they came from. I mean, whether that's, you know, bar- barbecue in Oklahoma or whether that's... Um, you know, a, a Japanese place that sells spam sandwiches. It's still that yearning.
1: And I love sort of what happens in the translation sometimes, you know, especially through Los Angeles. It's like you get a lot of, you know, I, I didn't know about the pastrami burrito being sort of a LA specific thing.
2: Well, pastrami burrito has been a big thing for God, decades and decades.
1: Yeah. I didn't know it was because of sort of the Boyle Heights sort of the immigration turnover from being the, the Jewish area to being a, a Hispanic area that it was.
2: Yeah, there's this atavistic longing for Pastrami <laughs> on the east side, <laughs> and sometimes you talk to people and they love pastramis and they don't quite know why they do. Uh, my wife's grandmother, I mean uh, who grew up in you know Boyle Heights, um, used to talk in this sort of dreamy voice about these sandwiches that she had when she was a little girl. They were pastrami sandwiches. And they came from this place on Brooklyn Avenue, which is now Cesar Chavez. And she'd never th- she would never see that sandwich again because the place has been gone so long. And she talked a little bit longer, and I realized that she was talking about Cantor's Delicatessa. Uh, which of course is, you know, the famous old line. Deli on Fairfax is the one that, you know, Charles Manson played the guitar for Spare Chains in front of. And I took her there and the look on her her face when she tasted that sandwich that she'd been dreaming about for 50 years was just stunning.
1: Oh, you're making me want a pastrami sandwich real bad, (laughs) right?
2: (laughs) I've done my job.
1: (laughs) I love uh, Langer's also.
2: Oh, Langer's is the the best.
1: Then the fact that it's only open until 3 or whenever it is, it closes, it's only open for lunch, uh, sort of, I feel like, makes it even more exceptional. Because you're like, oh, I can't have it all the time. I can only get it until 3, which is also like, I don't necessarily want a pastrami sandwich until like 5 o'clock.
0: Yeah, that's public service to not <laughs> serve you that. Take you out for the rest of the
1: evening. I used to have this, thing, everybody
2: in Southern California essentially gets their pastrami from the same place. There's like one guy in, or one small factory in Burbank that does it. Um, And my theory had always been that Langer's pastrami was better than the others because they steamed it longer, because they hand cut it, because it was like a little bit thicker. And I spent some time in the factory last year, and it turned out that actually language pastrami is better for so many reasons it's smoked a slightly different way it's cut a different way they they prefer sort of a different grade of meat almost and all the way it goes through the plant it's like everybody's very aware that they're looking at a language pastrami
1: well uh you mentioned we were talking on twitter sort of in anticipation of this episode uh i had a very exciting uh underwater encounter over the weekend with a giant sea slug that washed up on the beach. I was at Malibu Lagoon Beach, which turns out to be Surf Riders Beach, which I didn't know until they were yelling at us not to swim that it's the all surfing beach. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd been there before on a day when it wasn't quite such a hot, beautiful July day. So every surfer in the world was out. Uh, and so I was kind of like more interested in the tide pools in general and this thing washed up and i saw these people looking at it and i said oh look at you know what's on that rock that they're all looking at and then i realized that it was the entire rock (laughs) was a sea slug (laughs) and it was so big i could not believe how big it was i was just like oh it's an alien it was just completely an alien it was breathing it was like as big as my head at least and I looked it up, and I guess that's the biggest kind of sea slug there is. Is the uh, California black sea hare. And it's this enormous thing, and it has like a valve. And I guess most of them squirt ink at you. If you try to touch mm-hmm. them too much, they will squirt purple toxic ink at you. But this kind doesn't squirt ink. So my friend actually ended up picking it up and putting it on a rock and bringing it back into the ocean, <laughs> although I'm sure it just kept getting washed back out. And it was amazing and kind of all I can talk about and think about.
0: <laughs> I, I saw this on your Instagram. It looks like the brain bug from Starship Troopers. It like, is. And about that size. Yeah. It, like,
1: it completely is. I I just could not t- stop talking about it because I was like, that's an alien. That lives in the ocean. So do we. And they get up to 30 pounds, apparently.
2: 30, 35. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... I mean, I saw your pictures on Instagram also, and I was surprised that it didn't slime you. Yeah. Because it doesn't like squirt ink like a squid. It exudes ink. It's just like this inky slime.
1: I was kind of hoping it would, I have to say, because that would have been even more alien and, and weird of it to do. And then I found out later, I guess this kind specifically does not do the ink which is also good because my friend picked it up, and I was like, "He's gonna get inked, definitely." <laughs> and then I saw that it is a delicacy in some places.
2: You can get it with <laughs> leeks. Yeah, they uh, they they cut it into sort of slivers and they and they stir fry it. Where is these, that
1: that you can get yeah, it? What
2: kind of cuisine is that? It's a hybrid cuisine. It's the it's from the area Yambian, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing completely incorrectly. But it's the part of China, Shandong, that's right north of North Korea. So it's like the only place in the world where people actually escape into China. And then they eat sea slug? Yeah, it's, it's landlocked. I mean, it's culinary. It's a sort of a fascinating thing. They do mostly korean food it's i think 45 percent ethnic korean it used to be as high as 80. they are known throughout korea for their adeptness with bosun uh, tong which is a stew made out of dog have you had it i have had a version of it made with goat but I, I haven't had, uh, I, I haven't gone full Bowser. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, on my first trip to Korea, I was talking to some people. I found out the street that was lined with restaurants um, serving this in Seoul. And I asked a bunch of people, and we had some discussion about what the best one would be. And I went there, and I was about to go in, and I realized that if I had eaten dog that because of what i do i would have to write about eating dog and for the rest of my career people would say nothing but that's the man who eats dog
1: well i think it's interesting because one of the things i was thinking about with the sea slug was that it was so cute i (laughs) became very attached to it because it was like the size of a puppy almost and it was you know it was breathing it was like moving and it felt uh, very much like a, a creature that you could have as a pet, or you know, I just was thinking about it in a different way than I usually do. And uh, then we went to the real inn afterwards, and I got fried oysters, and I I couldn't finish eating them because I kept <laughs> thinking about the sea slug and being like, oh, I'm eating my friend. What am I doing? Uh, once is it just you know what's wrong with me that if something is cute, I don't want to eat it, but if I don't have that association with it it's fine you know
0: that's why things yeah. are cute is so that their their parents won't eat them when they're born it's, right. like, it's like why a kitten is cute or you know
1: you know what i was saying it's like well some people you know might be think the sea slug is like a weird thing to eat but it's like not weirder than eating a crab you know which is also an alien i mean sea,
2: sea hares are Almost uniquely cute among yeah. slimy creatures like that because they have those two uh, antennae. Yeah, which are up. called
1: rhinopores apparently. Yeah, and yeah, and they look like a little bunny. They look like a little cute sea slug bunny thing. And
2: they they call them hairs, so you think of rabbit ears. But I don't know about the one that you saw, but they're they're comically small. And, and so it looks like somebody, not just a bunny, but it looks like a really cute cartoon of a bunny.
1: Yeah, because it's just got two little, like, Shrek ears coming out of this cute thing. Which are apparently not only its
2: eyes, but also its tongue. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not so cute now. <laughs> no,
1: I just, I like to think about what is it that makes me think something is alien, and, you know, especially in terms of what you eat, uh, you know, sometimes I give my vegan friends a hard time about, like, well, you, you know, don't you think vegetables get... Don't, don't they scream when you pull them out of the earth and we just don't acknowledge it because it's not something we can hear? But, you know, there are studies that show that they, they don't like being being taken out of their homes. <laughs> Which then you get to the point where you're like, okay, you can't eat anything because everything is cute and alive in some way.
2: Well, th- there there are some people who... Not so many, but who will only eat things that want to be eaten. Like fruits exist to be eaten. Vegetables, not so much.
1: And there are fruititarians, or, or is it Jainists who only eat things that fall off trees once they've fallen?
2: Yeah, and they refuse to eat um, onions because they might damage an
0: ant, when
1: <laughs> taking it out
0: of the soil. Well,
1: we've been talking about ants a lot on this podcast recently. <laughs>
0: yeah, all of all of Molly's empathy for other species uh, stops at ants.
1: Well, again, it's like you have the empathy, and then they're trying to eat you, and you're like, okay, it's me or them. I gotta make a choice here. <laughs> uh,
2: I've I've eaten ants.
1: Oh yeah, how is that?
2: Um. There were two different kinds. Um, actually, both were... Uh, Rene Redzepi owns a restaurant called Loma in Copenhagen a lot of people, including me, think is the best in the world. It's, it's officially not this year. It's number three or something. But um, he does this... Did this dessert for a while with uh, blueberries and...
1: And ants. And
2: they sprinkled ants on them. And I had a meal of his in Japan. He took over a restaurant in Japan for a few months last year. And um, they were these beautiful sort of translucent prawns that had been alive until like five seconds earlier. (laughs) And they sprinkled ants on them and the ants had just this beautiful sort of peppery flavor.
1: So ants are delicious?
2: Some ants are delicious. They're I mean, there are probably half a million species of ants, and probably 1% to 2% of those species are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to know. There are people who do that. I mean, Renee himself has this lab. It's like a houseboat that's parked on the wharf in Copenhagen outside his restaurant. And they experiment with things all day. Day and night to see what's good. They get some of it's for the restaurant, some of it's um, contract stuff. The, uh, the time I was there, they got a contract from a yogurt company, something um, looking for delicious seaweed. So they, they were in the process of tasting, you know, every seaweed they they could find on the coasts of Denmark and southern Sweden, and apparently most of them tasted like dirty beach. <laughs> <laughs> But they found like they found a the good one they found
0: a couple that they didn't know about
1: I like seaweed
0: how did they find the good tasting ants what was the trial and error involved in that given the variety of ant species um there's a chef in Sao Paulo named
2: uh, Alex Adela, often thought of as like the best chef in South America his his restaurant's extraordinary he's constructed like an entire jungle cuisine of like not all foraged foods, but mostly foraged foods from the jungle. And uh, ants were something that he did. He, I've never had his dish with the live ants, but he does dishes with like live ants crawling on them.
1: Well, that's supposed to, supposedly the next food frontier, right? Is insects because they're omnipresent and easy to farm or something.
0: Yeah, night market has grasshoppers
1: yeah i mean a lot that's of cuisines in the, in have insects and again it's like as somebody who eats crawfish you know i i try to think about like why is it that i can eat a crawfish which is like a totally creepy arthropod but if somebody offered me like a cockroach i'd be like no that's gross but but if it's but just it's just cultural
2: there's something about cockroaches or water bugs, they usually call them when they're doing it, that you can get the, you, you can get them Thailand, that they're big in Thailand, and they're sautéed, and they're usually just crunchy and nice, but like one and out of every four or five, there's just this bit of goop that didn't quite cook through <laughs> in the middle, and then you, s- you suddenly realize in an extremely visceral way that it, you're eating a roach. <laughs> Um, There's a restaurant in L.A. serving uh, Oaxacan food called Gale Yeah, I was going to say. That serves extremely delicious crickets. Yeah. I mean, they just serve you a plate of fried crickets and tortillas and guacamole and you make yourself little cricket tacos.
1: I feel like anything, if you fry it, it's going to probably be edible at least.
2: But the problem with having bugs as a maiden source of protein is that you really don't want to eat like two heaping scoops of bugs.
1: sent me this review you wrote where you ate hagfish yeah and the description of the hagfish is so funny and yeah. visceral
0: <laughs> i mentioned i mentioned it to that you, you were coming on the show to my friend and he immediately sent back he was like this is one of my favorite leads of all time is that opening paragraph of the hagfish thing i don't have it in front of me but I'll make you read it out loud but thanks so. <laughs> I, I was in a uh,
2: a documentary this year, City of Gold. And there was a whole hagfish scene in that.
1: Oh, great.
2: Um, I don't actually eat the hagfish in that scene. I, I, I just talk about it. Because you
1: did it once, and you were like, not again. Well, it's not.
2: Hagfish is one of the most uniquely vile animals in the world. Right. right? Well, when you
1: look up the photos of them, you're like, that's not a cute thing. <laughs> no,
2: no you, you, you go to a fish place in korea and there's a tank of them and it looks like you know swimming uncircumcised dicks <laughs> okay so, so the appearance is not lovely um i mean unless you're into that sort of thing but it's I,
1: like a tube with teeth at the end <laughs> it's very and something they're one of the oldest
2: animals still accident. in fact they're i think the single oldest Vertebrate, and they're not really vertebrates because the only bone they have is cranium, so their brain is being protected. But that's the only other than that, it's a sort of like icky cartilage.
1: It has a brain, yeah,
0: apparently. <laughs> so they're unchanged from like prehistoric times, they're unchanged from here. I mean,
1: that's Be, what it looks like
2: because it turns out that their defense mechanism is so brilliant which is that they exude this protein that turns into slime. And if you put a hagfish into like a five-gallon bucket of water, it will be in a five-gallon bucket of slime within like (laughs) a few seconds. And so when anybody tries to attack it, they just slime it. And the the fish or crab or whatever is going to try to eat it um, suffocates on the slime. They don't necessarily die, but they definitely go away <laughs> and if you look up hagfish on YouTube which I recommend there's this other thing they do that is so alarming the way they clean the slime off themselves is they turn themselves into they tie themselves into like a knot and then the knot and then they the knot goes down the length of the hagfish and this giant like ball of Snotty solidified seawater is comes off of them, and they're shiny and new.
1: See, that's amazing.
2: So you know, they they catch them, they they skin them. The the slime doesn't happen when it gets t- to a restaurant, and they toss them on a grill. And washing hagfish c- cook on one of those tabletop grills is one of the most alarming <laughs> things you could possibly do in a restaurant because th- I mean they're not alive but they writhe as if they are and it's this entire heap of tangled writhing hell eels
1: and somebody is like mm, I can't wait to eat that it's going to well, be amazing well the thing about it is they're
2: not really delicious right? right i mean they're not they're not inedible i mean i i would eat eat one again but it's like an eel, like eating eel, only yeah. worse.
1: I mean, I like eel. That, but That's the thing is like, I like eel because by the time it gets to me, it's already on top of sushi rice. If yep. I had to watch the eel be killed and, and cut, I would probably lose my appetite more. Which is the same as like, if I had to watch a cow get slaughtered, I would never want to eat it.
2: Oh, yeah. There is that, there is that problem.
1: Yeah, Um, you have to kind of have the separation in your mind of like, where did this come from? Or you just get really into that and you're just like, I want to see everything like killed right in front of me so I can just confront it. And then I eat it, and I, you know, I earned eating it.
0: Well, that's what they—that's what they say. There's those movies like that. Like the, there's that movie Glass Walls. Like, oh God! I, I, I met Sam Simon, the, one of the creators of The Simpsons, uh, like a few years back, and he is a you know, devout was a devout vegetarian and was basically like, "I'll show you this movie. It'll make you a vegetarian. It's ten minutes long. It'll make you a vegan for life." And I was like, "Don't show me that movie, then. <laughs> like, I can't. Let me live in like in somewhat of ignorance. Like, you know." I mean, I've spent time in
2: slaughterhouses yeah. That's right I mean it's I I think that in a way if you're eating meat it's incumbent on you to learn something about the process to which your food is coming to you that I think it's important to eat you know well-raised Meat. I mean, meat that basically has animals that have basically one bad day, and
1: one really bad day. Yeah,
2: that it's it sucks. <laughs> but but and the place where when you're getting you know great meat, um, the the slaughter process is as humane as it could possibly be. Um, it's actually one of the big. Problems in the sustainable meat movement is that slaughterhouses have, are really, really well regulated, and you need a lot of FDA inspectors, and you need a lot of people doing. So it's usually giant operations around the block, and you can't really have like a, you know, a, a boutique artisanal slaughterhouse, <laughs> <laughs> the, ooh, the indie slaughterhouse. <laughs> you want to start? I mean, there sh- there should be, but the regulations are so tight that it's economically not super feasible. I've got to say, the thing in all my years of doing is that the only thing that's really, really bothered me was seeing ostriches go through the kill line.
1: Cause they're cute.
2: They're cute. There you go. They scream. Oh. In in a way, we've been accustomed to like you know what what skinned. Um, pigs and cows look like i mean we and chickens we know what a chicken looks like when it's meat. i did not know what an ostrich looked
1: like when oh. it was meat. <laughs> and again i'm like well that's that's a dumb bias of mine that like the more something looks like a little snow white forest creature the less i you know the more guilty i feel about eating it which is is dumb because it's like i feel that if i look in the eyes of a chicken yeah. i don't feel like Humanity, because it's a dinosaur.
0: That's what yeah. Werner Herzog says about well, chickens. Well, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: if you look in their eyes, you don't see like the searching, you know, Chuck Jones cartoon eyes that you see when you look in a pig's eyes, where you're like, "Oh, that is a friend. <laughs> I don't want to eat friends."
0: Right. This isn't the kind of chicken that could like love Gonzo back. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: Well, my my big problem as a kid was like the day I found out that chicken the food was the same thing as chicken <laughs> the animal it was like a big existential crisis for me. So oh, I was no. like, but I love <laughs> chicken the friend, but you know, I also uh am not willing to go vegan. So Have,
2: have you heard my chicken story? No. Uh when I was in college, a, um studying art at UCLA, um I was I was the shop assistant to, to Chris Burden, but I also took a lot of his stuff, and I fancied myself a performance artist. And I did this piece, um, which in retrospect was, like, incredibly stupid. <laughs> 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 but uh, I had this, you know, big... I was super influenced by this performance artist in L.A. named uh, Jeffrey Valance, who's still doing stuff. I'm mean, mostly as a painter. Very good painter. Um, but... I had a pile of supermarket chickens and I was blindfolded and probably not wearing anything as was the custom at the time. And I I, I had a machete and I was in a room with like just screaming sound like feedback (laughs) over a big sound system and lights. And I filled the room with two cans of uh, Glade American Beauty air freshener. So it, it smelled bad in a way you just can't imagine. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a chicken that was attached that, that had a rope around its neck and it was running around and I was, I was blindfolded and hacking with a machete at this pile of supermarket chickens. And I guess I assumed that you know the chicken would meet a bad end. But chickens are stupid, I mean, unusually stupid, but they're not that stupid. And at the end of this thing, after I'd alienated every friend I'd ever had. Because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're covered with, you know, you're naked and you're stinking and you're covered with chicken guns. And, and you're cleaning up, which is the saddest single moment of any art performance. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that I had this chicken to deal with. I mean, it wasn't a chicken of any great pedigree. I bought it from, like, one of those live butchers in Chinatown but I felt the responsibility for it so I put it in a cardboard box and took it home and had nowhere I laid out some paper on top of my refrigerator I didn't know where else to put it and started feeding it niblets green giant niblets and I had this chicken and I fully intended to cook this chicken Remember, I was 19 at the time, right? I mean, it's it's, it's not complete impunity for stupidity, but it, it gives you some idea why. And I, I was, you know, extremely broke, as students tend to be. And I think a third of my income was going to niblets at one point. This bird <laughs> ate a lot of damn niblets. And I, ke- I kept reading all these recipe books. Well, how am I going to cook this chicken? This is a very special chicken. I didn't want to waste it. I didn't want it to be a bad-tasting chicken. I wanted it to be something that was worthy of its, you know, niblet-fed existence. Eventually, I, I guess they clipped the wings of chickens when they prepared them for sale. The wings grew back, and it, it figured out how to leap off of my refrigerator and water on my apartment, and suddenly... It wasn't like a cute thing on my refrigerator. It was something that was shitting on every square inch of my apartment. And so I put it on the roof of a uh, thrifty drugstore next door (laughs) (laughs) to my apartment building in a uh, kid's playpen I picked up on the street. And I still fed it, but after three weeks it disappeared. Whether it was a bird of prey or neighbors, I, I don't know.
1: Or it learned to fly.
2: That would be magical, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's
1: it? what I'm going to decide happened. <laughs> that's
0: the Disney ending. Yeah.
1: Did it have a name? Did you give it a name?
0: I uh, I just called it the chicken. <laughs> that's probably wise, because you knew you were going to cook it at some point. You didn't want to yeah. personify it too much. Sometimes, All right. sometimes I would call it the hen, but it it didn't... It was
2: distinctly a hen, but it didn't have that many specifically hen-like characteristics to it. Oh. But, yeah, th- this this would be... Be coming to terms with, or trying to come to terms with, the ownership of a chicken and not doing very well with it.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on North Mollywood, Jonathan. Oh,
2: I'm so glad.
1: Oh, we're so glad. Big fans. See you guys next week.
0: Thanks a lot.
2: This episode of North Mollywood was produced by Michael Katano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasha Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.